Good morning, class. Welcome to our study entitled uh, Loving the Least of These. Today is September 15th. Make sure you have the handout that's in the foyer there. Is it the same as last week? Same as last week, yes. And I want to commend to you uh, the example of one of your ruling elders. Dory Kenyon is one of your ruling elders, and he sent me a little handout. I think on uh, Monday or Tuesday, he'd given some reflection to the passage we started looking at last week from Matthew 25. And he did a simple outline of it and made some connections to some other verses. Very nice, but I love to hold up examples of... uh, that this is an example of one of your elders spends a serious time in the Word of God. So I'm grateful for Dory's example. So it was a blessing to receive that. We're sort of using as our launch, or really laying a foundation in our class, of this picture of uh, the final judgment of Jesus in Matthew 25. And we, we want to understand how that defines and shapes our relationships in the church, because it turns out in that final judgment that the way we treated people becomes a basis for judgment and the evidence of true saving faith. And it occurred to me preparing the study that, I mean, how many of you give a lot of thought to the final judgment? How how many of you live in light of the final judgment? Good, you should. Um, And I think in our circles where we are really, really, really big on grace and the gospel, and we should be, this doctrine tends to get eclipsed. And it should not. It's incredibly important. What we're going to do today is walk through portions of the New Testament and show you how it keeps coming up. Final judgment keeps coming up. You are accountable, beloved, for everything you say, think, and do. There is a day of accounting. And it's a really serious thing. And I'm going to skip ahead. If you want to look at the diagram I'm about to draw, it's... um, it's about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine pages into your handout. Because I just, I just want to be clear that this is not a salvation issue, but it's an extremely important issue. So this is diagramming a number of ways in history salvation has been talked about, conceived of. One view is that based on your performance, based on your works, on the strength of that, you are justified in God's sight. What do we mean by justified? You're fit for his presence. You're equal to his presence. You're as righteous as you need to be for the presence of God. So, anybody know what fancy theological word we use to describe that view? It begins with a P. Pelagianism. Thank you, Frank. Pelagianism. Somehow, you have it within yourself to do enough to commend yourself to the presence of a holy, pure, and righteous God. Does that sound reasonable to you, knowing yourself? Not at all. Okay. Then you have the view that says uh, you you need Jesus. You need to trust Jesus. You need the cross. But you've got to do your part. Works plus faith leads to justification. And this actually is probably the view of tons of people that go to church. They know about Easter. They know about Christmas. They have pictures of Jesus on the wall. You know that famous picture that he probably didn't look like that at all because Jesus was Middle Eastern and probably a darker skin color man. But forgetting about that for a second. 
Um, th this is the view of a whole lot of people, and, and that is, I trust Jesus, but I've got to do my part. Shake and bake, put in the oven, out pops justification. Anybody know what technical term we use to describe that? Legalism. Okay? This actually, except they have the wrong Jesus, is Mormonism. Uh, a lot of people would say when you dig closely at the Roman Catholic doctrine, that's Roman Catholicism. Uh, if you read um, Council of Trent, they anathematize the gospel that I preach here week in and week out. They anathematize my gospel. I'm sorry about that. I'm not saying all Catholics believe that. I think there are Catholics who believe in Jesus in spite of that doctrine. Anyway, so the question, what's the problem with this view? It presupposes there's something lacking in what you trust about Christ. And there's nothing lacking in the righteousness of Jesus and the death of Jesus. You have all you need in Jesus. You couldn't possibly add anything to it. Okay, so that's not the right view. Then you have the view that says, oh yes, all we need is Jesus equals justification regardless of what you do. Okay, you're saved by the work of Christ alone regardless of what you do. That also has a fancy uh, theological name. It begins with an A. What's that called? Hugh? Anti-against namas law antinomianism. This actually, in, this view in, uh, in, incurred the ire of many a Christian when um, a, a book came out by Charles Ryrie in the 80s called The Great Salvation. This was the view he was espousing. It was attacked by John MacArthur in his book, The Gospel According to Jesus and Other Reformed People. But this is a view um, that you're saved by faith alone regardless of what you do. The Gospel is, of course, we are saved by trusting the work of Christ alone. We're saved by the work of Christ. We're justified by faith alone, but not by faith which is alone. We're saved by faith alone, but not by faith which is alone. James chapter 2 raises the question, If a man says he has faith and has no works, can that faith save him? James's answer is no. Okay? So in a sense, in this portion of our study, we are simply focusing, we're teasing out some of the implications of this doctrine, that as much as we are relishing the love of Christ, resting in the gospel, we are sanctified by faith, justified by faith, we live by faith, 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 faith. We're also taking seriously the fact that on the final day, there will be a reckoning of what our faith produced. There will be a very serious reckoning. So I'm just, I might be belaboring the point, and again, we're laying a foundation where we'll ultimately get to what is the nature of our relationships within the church and um, so now if you want to turn to page 3, we're at the bottom of page 3, looking at passages that allude to the doctrine of the day of judgment. Okay? Yes, students, there'll be a final exam at the end of the course that will test the genuineness of your faith. Should this doctrine put the fear of God in you a little bit? Yes, this doctrine is all through the Bible for very good reason. Somebody read for us Ecclesiastes 12, 14. For God shall bring every one 
Thank you, Pat. <clears throat> so why the secret things? What's significant about that, do you think? Our thoughts are secret, right? If I'm having a nice conversation with you right now, but in my heart I'm hating you, that secret thing will come to light. What do we tend to believe erroneously about our secret things, but we do in the dark? We tend to believe what? Foolishly. God doesn't see. Don't we think that? Right? And we, what we hide from others, and we can hide from others things very well, Right? It's the, the, you know, the axe murderer goes on a rampage and they talk to his neighbors. And, he was such a nice person. I can't believe he did this. If your doctrines were formed, you can believe anybody can do anything because of the evil that resides in all of our hearts. <clears throat> so just back up one second. Let me ask you this question. Why do we need these warnings? These, these are warnings. These are promises. There'll be a final judgment. Why do we need these? I'm sorry, start it again, Pat, because what? Paul says it's a way of damning ourselves. Good. And is that 1 Corinthians 16? Examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself periodically. In a sense, every Sunday you have an opportunity to examine yourself when we have the Lord's table. God sets before you the work of Christ. Good. Why else do we need these warnings? The fear of God. The fear of God. How many of you get up in the morning and are consciously all in on fearing the Lord? No, I just assume whatever fear of the Lord I had at 11 o'clock last night when I wake up in the morning, I assume it's gone. That's why I need to get with Jesus in the morning and His Word and have him create that in me. It's, it's on, on par with being filled with the Spirit. It's a present, continuous imperative. Okay. Matthew 7, 1 and 2. <clears throat> judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. What an interesting thought. <laughs> on the day of judgment... God's going to say, remember that person you were so critical of and you impugned their motives? Don't you remember when you had those same motives? We're just going to use, was it Francis Schaeffer who said uh, uh, on the day of judgment um, God's going to just take the tape recorder that hung around your neck your whole life and take it off and push rewind and then push play and let you sit in You'll be judged by everything you said. I think that was it. Shakespeare illustration. That, that comes right from here. Now, he's not talking about making sober estimations of people's behavior. If I'm in sin, you need to what? Rebuke me. Rebuke me. And there's a standard. It's a biblical standard. What you can't do is assign motive. So I've had, I've had challenges with ministry leaders in the past, in my life. And where, where, where is the seediness of my heart tempted to go? What, what, and, and, and the bad part of my heart, where do I want to go when I look at the people, those people I've had? I'm putting this nicely, right? Challenges. What does my heart want to do? Judge them, criticize them, malign them, assign motive. 
Jesus is saying, you can't do that. I'll take care of that in the end. What does this verse positively enjoin you to do when it comes to other people? Give them grace. Think the best of them. Give them the benefit of the doubt. That's the starting place. Think the best. Give grace. Give the benefit of the doubt. Okay, Matthew 7, 21 to 23. So these aren't people merely calling Jesus Savior. And that was Riley's contention. You can have Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. These are people calling Jesus Lord. Lord. And what are they doing? What's that? They're, in spite of their miracles they're performing, they're workers of lawlessness. They call them Lord, but they're not acting as if he's Lord. It looks like these are ministry leaders prophesying, casting out demons, performing miracles in your name. Ministry leaders who actually seem to be endowed with spiritual power in spite of the fact that they don't have a regenerate heart. Because if they had a regenerate heart, what would they say? What would they say? Can you... Can you uh, well, what would Jesus say? Welcome to my kingdom. I know you because you you practice lawlessness. You did what I said. You took my command seriously. Flawlessly? Of course not. That's a denial of the gospel. That's this. Pelagianism. Very sober passage, guys. Think of the surprise. Ministry leaders, I mean, wouldn't you go to bed at night feeling really good about yourself? We cast out demons in Jesus' name. We prophesied in Jesus' name. We performed miracles in Jesus' name. My head would hit the pillow like, whoa, that's just awesome. And I wake up, and it's judgment day. Lord, Lord, depart from me. I never knew you. So these are sober warnings. And actually, what doctrine in Tulip is this, really? Which letter in Tulip is this? Total depravity, unconditional election, limited or definite atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Which, which one of the letters is, is behind this teaching? It's P. True believers persevere. And embedded in the doctrine of the fact that God preserves and we persevere in the faith are warnings not to give up. You see warnings. If indeed you continue in the faith, Paul says in Colossians 1. And again, it's back to examine yourselves. Look at yourselves. Take sober estimation of your life. Not because we're saved by works, but to see if the faith that is in my heart is a genuine faith. That's why that James 2 passage is there. 
Uh, Matthew 12, 36 and 37. <clears throat> but I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. <clears throat> Thanks, Michael. Sorry for the old English there. I lifted it right out of the uh, proof texting in the Westminster Confession on their chapter and final judgment, which I actually have in here, but that's why this is Old English. So that's, that's the one that all of these others are ESV. So what is Jesus saying? On judgment day, what are we going to be looking at? Every word you ever spoke. What should that do to your soul? Where should you run? To Jesus, to his spirit, to grace, to find cleansing, repentance. If I have a problem speaking this way, there's a biblical way to address that. It's the Pauline put off and put on. I'll allude to it briefly in my sermon this morning, but that's a wonderful, rich, deep study. If this is not calling you to a self-improvement program. It's driving us to Jesus that our hearts would be under the control of his spirit. And then doing the hard work of thinking, why do I say the things I do? Why do you know, I think about my life, and the things I regret most are things I've said. Things I've said. Just the stupidest, stupidest, careless things that I've said. Actually, that's probably understated. I've done a lot of stupid things, too, but I just... Oh, I just think, oh, John 5, 25 to 27. <clears throat> Jim? Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment. Because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Thank you. So, what two time periods are being contrasted here? What is the first sentence? An hour is. Is now here, right now, and there's a judgment coming. And Jesus is saying, when he speaks and the Spirit attends to his word, the dead come to life. The word of God brings us to life. The Spirit uses the word to regenerate us. That's a, that's a precursor to the final judgment when Jesus, the Son of Man, by whom his Father has entrusted all judgment, there will be a day of judgment, and he will call forth, and everyone will be raised from the dead. And they'll, st they'll stand before Jesus. And what will become evident? Strictly speaking, what will become evident? Their faith. Their faith. Right? If, if, in, unless we don't believe the gospel, those who have done good to a resurrection of life, they've done good because of what? Their faith. It will be the proving of genuine faith. The proving you belong to Jesus by faith. 
And some of you, I've read an, an objection to this, that, well, don't the dead already know the verdict? Or those who have already died, the moment you die, your spirit either goes to heaven or hell, right? Yes. Yes. Heaven or hell, immediately. Today you'll be in paradise. So the people who have died in unbelief now, they already know the verdict, don't they? So what's the point of this? I thought that was a good question that was raised. What's the point of this? The dead already know the verdict. Well, here's some of the answers. There are some people still living when Christ appears who the verdict hasn't been spoken. Right? Well, when Jesus comes, there'll be people living who aren't going to heaven. And that's their verdict for them. Uh, second reason, even though the dead already are the verdict, no one yet knows the deeper punishment coming. Because uh, even though those who have died in unbelief are not with the Lord in, in, in heaven but in hell, they're going to be thrown into the lake of fire with the devil. That will be, it will be even more severe and evident to all. It's not evident to all at this point. The righteous will be public, publicly displayed for Christ's glory. That hasn't happened yet. And all men must behold his glory. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ alone. That hasn't happened yet. This will happen at that time. Those are some of the reasons why people who already know their eternal destiny, it will be made public again. Just jump in if you want to make comments or anything. So Paul preaching on Mars Hill to the Athenian philosophers, Acts 17, 30-31. The times of ignorance God overlooks, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Thanks, Dory. So what doctrine is embedded in the resurrection? What's that? Assurance. Uh, the assurance of our salvation because of union with Christ. If we die with Christ, we have been and will be raised with Christ. <coughs> Good. What else according to this verse? What is Paul saying? The resurrection proves. Day of there's a day of judgment. And, and that's why there's no... And look, you take the resurrection out of Christianity. When I first moved to Fort Worth to plant Fort Worth Press... Uh, one of the headlines in the newspaper there was uh, a big um, liberal Methodist pastor. You know, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. It's just a spiritual resurrection. Well, if, he, if he's right, then um, there's no day of judgment. The resurrection of Jesus proves there'll be a day of judgment somehow. So we must preach the resurrection. And he's the judge. See, the judge is alive. He conquered and of course, some of them begin to scorn, some of them, and Marshall will hear, we'll hear more about this later. Interesting, right? God proves the day of judgment by raising Jesus from the dead. And God is calling all men everywhere to repent. There is a warrant out for every human being to repent and believe. It's the general call of the gospel, as opposed to the general call versus the special, specific, efficacious call that if you're in Christ, you've answered because the Holy Spirit gave you the gift of faith. All men are called. Some are chosen. If you want to be chosen, ask God to save you and he'll choose you. 
Romans 2, 6 to 11. He will render to each one according to his works those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Thank you, Frank. Um, does it sound like Paul here is teaching salvation by works? You could read it that way. But if there's anybody who believes in justification by faith alone, through Christ alone, by grace alone, it's Paul, and the whole book is about that. So what is basically, what is this a picture of? Those who live by faith. Somebody describe them to me. What does saving through faith and faith, how does it live? Somebody describe it according to the verse. It's right there. Somebody read it out. Patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. That's it. That's what saving faith does. So you have to stop and open your life to the Lord and say, does that describe my life to some degree? To a significant degree? God shows no partiality. What is that seedy part of my heart? How do I think in the seedy part of my heart? Oh, I'm a special case. <laughs> God's going to cut me slack. It's me, after all. Do you ever think that? I do. <laughs> and I think, strictly speaking, the partiality in view here is between the only two races God acknowledges on the earth, Jew and Gentile. Those are the only two races he acknowledges. All the others are variations, very minute variations. And DNA. It's the only two races God enough. We'll get to that a little bit later in our study. Jew and Gentile. No partiality. Romans 2.16, kind of same passage there. And that day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. What are the secrets of men? Do you think? Eileen, what, what comes to mind? Uh, stuff I don't want you to know about me. <laughs> that's right. Or else, right? Or that's why it's a secret. <laughs> right? God sees everything. And Jesus is the judge. But here it is again. There's a day when God will judge everything. According to my gospel, what does that mean? In this judgment, will there be judicial condemnation for those who believe the gospel? Can't be. You believe the gospel, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is not a judgment for sin sending you away from the presence of the Lord. If you're a believer in Jesus, you're with the Lord already. You're in union with Christ. But again, a sober, reflective, test yourself, examine yourself, is the faith I profess to have truly a faith that possesses Jesus. If it is, it will redound to a life of peace and glory and seeking immortality and stuff that he said before. Romans 9, 22 and 23, Paul's pa uh, big important passage unpacking 
the doctrine of unconditional election. Who would read that for us? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the levels of the mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory? Thank you, Lisa. So if you're a believer in Jesus, you're called what in this passage? A vessel of mercy. What is mercy? It's a justice concept, so relate mercy to to, to justice. Justice is about deserving. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. There's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who, because they belong to Jesus and he got what they deserve, are a vessel of mercy. Those who are vessels of wrath because God is dealing justly with them. We can be sure God will never deal what with anyone? How with anyone? Unjustly. No such thing in the universe. Right. And again, if you would like God to show you mercy, ask him and he'll have mercy on you. That's the next chapter. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord be saved. So Paul doesn't want you to get through nine and think, I'll, how can I ever be saved? I'm, I'm not elect. No. Call on the name of the Lord. He will save everyone who calls on his name. There's the free ark of the gospel that immediately follows the doctrine of unconditional election. Anyway, we're saved by mercy. This is the same this is the same uh, epistle in which Paul says, and you, you vessels of mercy are going to be what? Judged for what you did with it. Should you be judged for what you do with the mercy of God? Yes. That seems fair. Warnings embedded in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Those that God preserves persevere. They persevere because there are serious warnings about giving up. The doctrine of salvation isn't, well, now that I'm saved by faith, let's kick up the feet and do whatever we want to do. What does that show? Who's it about? You. The gospel is about the glory of God. A heart that comes on is captured by the glory of God. And where does Paul really unpack that attitude in Romans, beginning in verse in chapter 6? Boy, that's another study. If I'm here long enough, maybe we'll do the reign of life in Romans 6. But for your sake, it's probably, I, you should get a new pastor. <laughs> <laughs> When's that guy going to leave? Okay. Uh, fast forwarding ahead to Romans 14. In the context... I don't like you. You buy meat from the market. I don't like you. You drink wine. You shouldn't eat wine. You shouldn't buy meat from the market. It's people's behavior that doesn't comport with your scruples. That's the greater context. Somebody read 14, 10 to 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of him. That couldn't be much clearer. So what's the situation? You're doing something I don't like, and it leads me to have what sort of visceral response to you? What's the word? I despise you. That's really strong language. That's I'm passing judgment on you. I'm despising you. What would the opposite be? What would the gospel call me to do? Love you? have compassion on you? Okay. And so, um, how does Paul reason us out of that sitting in judgment on people? Where does he fast forward to? The judgment seat. When God the judge sits. 
And that will be very different than the way we judge, won't it? <laughs> and uh, here's the promise. As it is written, says the Lord, every knee will bow, every tongue confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. On the judgment day, I'm not going to say anything about the people I thought hurt me. It's not going to be in view. I'm not going to be worried about any other person in my life with whom I had heartburn. I've had heartburn with people. They're not in view. It's God and me, and particularly how I judge them. So if you find yourself now in that disposition, this is a good time to say, Whoa, Nelly! Maybe we need to change the way I'm thinking about this. So who else will you give an account to on the Day of Judgment? Who else? Who, for who else would you give an account for on the Day of Judgment? Who else? No one. No, just you. You know, there's a, um, there's a, there's a great movie, it's, I think it was called Ever After with Drew Barrymore. Did anybody remember this movie? I think it's like from the 80s. It's sort of a modern day Cinderella. Ever After? Is that the right title? Yes. The Drew Barrymore? There's a great scene in that movie where the, 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 the mean uh, what, stepmother, she's in this crowd, and all of a sudden she's being accused of what she did wrong, and it's just her, and everyone is out here, and, and she's like looking for someone to defend her, and there's no defense. I thought, ooh, that's the final judgment. No one to defend you. Just you, what you did, and God wanting to talk to you about it. What should that inform tomorrow? The way you live. The way you judge others. What you do. Is this for God's glory or for mine? Doesn't mean you run away from Jesus and focus all on this. In fact, the only way to get the kind of works God wants is to be smitten with the love of Jesus. It flows from a heart of love. 1 Corinthians 15 Get a little bit more good news here. Not, no, the final judgment is good news, isn't it? It is good news. Think of the rich, just sidebar, think of the rich young ruler. Remember how the story of the rich young ruler ends? Jesus says, it's more easier for a, a camel to go through eye of a needle, the biggest uh, instrument of domestic house you know, use, a camel, the eye of a needle, the smallest instrument of, of domestic uh, use, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get into heaven. And what do the disciples say? Who can be saved? Because the thinking in that day was, if you're rich, you're blessed. And Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. What do we call that? What's impossible with man is possible with God. What is that? The gospel. Christ does what we can't do for ourselves. And then I Peter or somebody goes, what about us? We left everything and followed you. <laughs> That's right. And what does Jesus say? You will be rewarded exponentially, not only in this life and in the next. You get the gospel. You get the doctrine of rewards. It's just stunning. It's jaw-dropping. And uh, it's not always the same. There are people who, Jim Elliott, what was his reward for serving the, uh, Jesus with the Aka Indians? <coughs> he died early in life. Eric Little, famous runner from Scotland, his mission ultimately was to go to China 
He died in a concentration camp in China for Christ. But Jesus is saying, your reward is going to be immense. That's important somehow to our thinking. Most serious Christians I know aren't serving Jesus for the reward. They're serving Jesus for Jesus. But he promises rewards. And there are degrees of reward, just as there will surely be degrees of punishment in heaven. When Jesus said it would have been better if you hadn't done that. There will be degrees of punishment in heaven. Don't you think Hitler's going to be worse off than your next-door neighbor who was a nice person who died outside of faith? Of course he's going to be worse off. God's just. And there are going to be degrees of reward in heaven. And it does, the Bible doesn't say a lot what that looks like, which is really curious. Maybe we'll get a snippet of it when we look at the, um, one of the parables. I have a supplemental handout if we get to it. Okay, let's move along. 1 Corinthians 15, 50, sorry. The coming resurrection. Who would read it for us? I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, not does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and the last trump. For the trump will sound, and the dead will be raised in the perishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, this mortal body. Thank you, Pat. So, um, the promise of Christ's victory over sin and death, we could, we could never do it. This is the hope of the gospel. Just out of curiosity, does anybody know what verse 58 says? I left it out strategically. So he's preaching the final resurrection. Then in a, in, in a moment, our bodies will be transformed into indestructible, glorified bodies. We'll be with Jesus. Jesus is your future. Right? He is in a glorified body now. We're, Yes, right. Therefore, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that nothing you do for the Lord is in vain. There's the moral implication that follows the doctrine of final resurrection. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That is not works righteousness. That is not legalism. That is not moralism. That is the implication of a vibrant faith that embraces the hope of resurrection. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work for him is never in vain. Nothing you do for Jesus will go unnoticed. Nothing. Not the smallest cup of cold water to the thirsty person. On, 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 on. Wow. What a promise. 2 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7. I'll ask you to reflect on the tone of this. What is the tone of this after it's read? So look for the general tone. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Go ahead, read, read uh, right through for, uh, the verse 9. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. 
For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Thank you, Michael. So what's the tone here? When you're reading this, how 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 do you how does it leave you feeling? What, what's Paul? Where's Paul? Encouraged. He's encouraged. He's a we're we're in good spirits. We be of good courage um, because of the certainty of being with the Lord. And what's that certainty based on? My works or Christ's? Christ's. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I will not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Okay? But what does that do to the way I think about my life? It, there's an accountability. <laughs> he fast forwards the final judgment into the way he lives now. We always make it our aim to please the Lord. Why should we please the Lord other than the fact that he deserves it? There'll be a day of accounting of how, what that looked like in our lives. And there should be, shouldn't there? Okay, anything? But see, see, it's not like the music's going along all cheery and you get to verse 10 and there's this down and boom. It's, it doesn't feel that way. It's just kind of matter of fact. We're, we're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ and we'll receive what is due for, in the body, whether good or bad. I think we said last week, we, those things that are done that are good will be rewarded. Those things that are evil, that's a loss of reward. And I'm really scrambling in my mind to figure out what this looks like, and the more I read, I just it's not super specific. But it's sufficient to think soberly about everything I say, think, and do right now. I don't know what it looks like to be rewarded in the, for what evil I did in the body. I don't know what that looks like on the final judgment. It isn't going to hell. Jesus has suffered hell at my place. That's why we have hope. Let's do this one last one from 1 Thessalonians 4. We looked at it uh, last semester when I preached through this epistle. Again, it's the Christian hope. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So Paul has received word that there's some teaching infiltrating the church, that if you died before the second coming, you lost out. And the new way of talking about death in Christianity is your sleep, because your body looks like you're sleeping. Your spirit isn't. It's alive and well in the presence of Jesus. And on that great day, your body will awake and be transformed and renewed all the verses we've been saying. So he says, we don't want you to be uninformed that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. So we grieve as those who have hope. What a wonderful verse. So whether we're at home or away, what's being at home? With Jesus. Or away from Jesus, still on this earth. We make it our, I'm sorry, I just bounced back into the verse above, I'm so sorry. Verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians 4. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Anyone who's died is coming with Jesus, when Jesus appears on the cloud of glory. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, referencing probably the Gospels, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, 
and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will, Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the air uh, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. This begins our always being with the Lord. And as this thing is being caught up, Paul reflected in 1 Corinthians 15, when those bodies are being caught up, they will be transformed instantly into their glorified bodies, the spirits that are coming down with him. We will be caught up, our bodies will be transformed into the twinkling of an eye, just like that. We'll be with the Lord in glorified bodies, just waiting for the earth to be renewed for us. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And I'm skipping ahead then into chapter 5 because Paul continues the same theme. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need for anything to be written to you. You yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, that's the thing he's been talking about in chapter 4, will come like a thief in the night. That's Jesus' description in Matthew 24. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. So what marks the attitude of people who are unaware of the second coming? Business as usual. Business as usual. What is that on par with 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago? The day of Noah. Noah's building the ark. People walk by and go, I'm going to get married. I'm going to work. Right? They can see the thing getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's like 300 yards long or something. Uh, going to work. How the stocks? Going to Aldi. Oblivious. This is what Jesus said. It will be like the days of Noah. People are just kind of, no, there's a judgment coming. And what, what has God put in the cycles of nature to show you there's a judgment coming? Fall and winter? Things die. The leaves fall off. It gets gray and gloomy. Things stop growing. There's kind of a death, right? What does God put in the cycle of nature to show resurrection? Spring. What in the late summer afternoons when it gets really hot and build up, what does God put in the skies to remind people of coming judgment? Thunder and lightning. For as a lightning flashes from one side of the earth to the other, so shall the coming of the sun be. People are supposed to look at that and go, wow, there's a judgment coming. Hurricanes, tsunamis, they all speak of the judgment of God. It, 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 look, above all, that we need to pray that our neighbors, that's, that, that they see that. Okay, we're out of time. Let me pray. And we'll continue. Um, I hope I'm, don't think I'm belaboring this. It's just really important. And we're laying a foundation for moving on in our study. Lord, the earth shook and the sun was hidden when our beloved Savior Jesus was dying for us on the cross to purchase an everlasting, unfailing, imperishable salvation by his blood. Thank you. Thank you. Help me and my brothers and sisters to live in light of that great day that we would stand before you and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name, amen.